0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies podcast. My name is Anders Holmes and this is another episode of the Movies
1: and Me. That's right. Uh, Each one of these uh, episodes uh, are very special to us because we get to talk to one of our friends uh, about uh, the films that have meant something uh, in their lives. And it's my uh, pleasure today to introduce my friend, Richard Bruno, who uh, I've been talking about films and many many other topics with for years now um and who is um the father of a dear dear friend of mine and my and, and my wife lily and uh, and and who uh, so is it's kind of it's kind of family at this point uh, and um and who is a wealth of uh knowledge and wisdom and stories and puns uh oh and um uh, and is generally uh, one of the great uh, raconteurs uh, that I know uh and so I thought uh who better uh, to, uh, to have on this, uh, um, on this new format of our podcast so welcome richard
2: thank, thank thank you very much anders and adam i'm i'm delighted to be here you know i i wanted to start off by saying that um my journey to film has been circuitous at best i uh for the longest time i was an inveterate theater snob and i you know my life operated under the fundamental assumption that that theater was in question, unquestionably, the superior art to film. Um, I believed passionately what a professor in grad school had had said to us, and that was that um, film is not in any way a truly dramatic art. Film is the the film is the responsibility of the editor. Um, and the juxtaposition of images and and while there's truth in that as as we all know from the the kuleshov effect nevertheless when you think about it it's hogwash um you know film film has every bit the potential for dramatic impact that that theater does, and in in some ways, even, even more. Uh, but the net result for me of that prejudice was that I never got anything resembling a formal education in film. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in English literature. I have an MFA in theater directing. Um, and before I fled in terror, I had completed all my coursework for a PhD in theater history and criticism. And early in my working life, I worked as a director, as a theater professor, as an actor, uh, as a dramaturg. And I even spent a bunch of years as the marketing director for, for a major Broadway producer. So that was where my formative years lay but nevertheless all this time film played a you know played a, a constant role in my life it was a presence but but always just as an avocation I never once considered it as a as a potential profession in any, in any way either as a as a maker or as a critic um, or as, as a formal field of study so when there came a point when my aesthetic changed and I realized that simultaneously I realized that for many years theater had consistently disappointed me and film had never broken my heart the way theater did. Um nevertheless, I, I found myself where I am today, which is a an apostate theater kid and a, a cinematic autodidact. Hmm.
1: A very uh very exciting. Um <laughs> introduction and uh and and as someone who knows you well this it, it explains a certain amount um i will <laughs> um what we've um you know normally say to people on this uh on this uh podcast format you know pick four films and uh talk about them and uh and we made this suggestion to you and um and you came up with a much more more nuanced and interesting approach which was to select four eras of your life and four ways of consuming uh film media uh and to discuss uh the the notable uh movies from those um uh from those kind of chapters uh and i think that's a tremendous idea and um and i want to um i want to launch right in um, okay so we we've got to come to the you know this this the young um theater, no doubt still theatre obsessed richard <laughs> bruno um you know perhaps even the richard bruno the child encounters <laughs> encounters the world of the silver screen for the first time um where this please take us on a journey okay
2: well it's 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 far more Gray than silver when I first encountered it, um, I, I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s, and my initial encounter with movies occurred during the late 1950s when I was a child, and and then continued and and grew even greater in the 60s and 70s as a as a teenager and then as a young adult, um, because in in my early years, apart from occasional and mostly holiday trips to an actual movie theater theater uh, my my major exposure to movies was on television um, and i remember these are the very very early days of television and so there was little if any original programming to be had uh things were so new and the technology was was so powerful primitive in many ways, that no one had yet even considered that a program could or should be shown more than once. There was no videotape on which to record something. You had to record them on cumbersome, expensive, and fragile kinescopes. Um, And and so there were no reruns. So there was this um, ever-growing maw that that broadcast television re- represented, you, you, you couldn't reuse any programming that you had. You constantly had to be coming up with new programming. And that's one job for the three major broadcast networks and a whole other job for the hundreds of independent television stations around the country who had virtually no original programming to fill out their schedules. And so you got A lot of, you know, cheap, short news programs that got slotted in over the course of the day or, you know, early versions of talk shows. However, at some point, the Hollywood studios realized and the the television networks simultaneously realized that there was an answer here. Um, And the answer were the libraries that the studios had. Um, the, in the mid to late 1950s, the broadcasters realized that that Hollywood movies, especially old Hollywood movies from the from the 30s and the 40s, uh, represented a huge resource. These movies were not being shown anywhere else virtually in the country. Uh, there were very, very few revival houses in the 1950s, certainly almost none outside of the major cities. um and uh, they weren't so; these movies weren't playing anywhere. They were just sitting in vaults, gathering dust or decaying. In many cases, there were no home videotape players. There were no DVDs. There were nothing, even vaguely hinting at the concept of streaming. So these thousands of films that the adult audience might have seen maybe once when they were kids or they were teenagers, but the children and the teenagers of the fifties and sixties had never seen. At most, of these things were something their parents might have talked about, or they might have seen a reference to, in a book. You no, know, it's it's funny. What's what's playing in my
1: mind now is the image of Jack Lemon in the apartment, turning on the TV and realizing that uh, Grand Hotel is going to be playing. And he sits up in his seat as he hears each of the cast members mentioned. And it to our millennial streaming, all, you know, on-demand eyes, that just seems absurd. You know, why get excited about, uh, you know, the prospect of Grand Hotel, which you can rent or buy or, you know, get on DVD or whatever. Or and watch it's, on it's, your it's, phone. Yeah, yeah exactly. Watching, exactly. Um, <laughs> or I can ask AI to just make a remake of it, you know. <laughs> Uh, starring Prince or something you know I, I think it, it 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 is what you're describing you know that that incredible excitement of seeing something that if you were lucky and old enough you may have seen once
2: well that, that's that's a very interesting point it's sort of it, it goes to this side of fundamental difference between synchronous and asynchronous experience and in a sense podcast is is basically asynchronous radio right um you you don't have to schedule your time to to listen to it. But that was very much true in television. There is a there's a a huge psychological difference between looking at a television program and I used to do that every Sunday up until, you know, sometime in, in the 1980s, I would look at the Sunday television program and circle things for the week. Um, and even if I had a, you know, a, a VCR, I wanted to make sure that I would programming it to, you know, to record that. I, and I still do that. It's probably atavistic. But every Sunday, I go to my, my, uh, my cable DVR. And yes, I still have cable, despite I also have a couple of dozen streaming channels. And, and I go to the TCM. Program for the week, and I I select the movies that I'm going to record to the DVR uh, to go with the other hundred or so that I never watch. Um, but the you know this notion of watching something when it is on versus watching it whenever you want to is, is psychologically tr- tremendously different. Um, but to get back to TV, all of a sudden, around 1957, I think, or, yeah, 57, 58, the first Hollywood movies started showing up on television. They had made, I think it was the Universal, had made the sale because they had the biggest library at the time, um, and this was transformative because unless you were a film student, you um, or worked in the industry you had no access to these films you'd you know occasionally you would be able to rent a film rent a sound projector get a hold of a screen and get a hold of a dozen of your friends and watch a movie that way but that was a rare rare occasion so suddenly overnight these films started showing up and it started filling out uh the 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 networking program Programming. And in New York City, where I grew up, um, there were some specific movie programs that were very, very important to me. Um, two of them ran on the, the CBS affiliate. You know, there were three, obviously, three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. Um, and in New York City, the CBS affiliate, in a, in a masterstroke of unimaginative naming, came up with two shows. One they called The Early Show. Because it was on at 5 p.m. and the other was, and you'll never guess, the Late Show. So at at five o'clock, um, the uh, the early show would come on, and it had a very recognizable theme song called the Syncopated Clock. Um, and once you heard that, you had this Pavlovian response. So it was time to, you know, gather in front of a television. And said, I'm not sure sure who the audience was for this, other than me. Um, but I guess you know you could watch it while you were preparing dinner for your family perhaps um and so a movie would run from 5 to 6 30 and oddly enough on television in those days all movies seemed to magically fit into a 90 minute period including commercials it always was remarkable to me that that hollywood studios were so considerate you know making the movies of absolutely the right length so i would watch the late show Maybe on weekends, I would watch the early show quite frequently, but the movie, the movie program that captured my heart and and certainly captured my attention ran on an independent station here in New York City. And it was so successful that it was copied around the country on other independent stations. And it was called the Million Dollar Movie. It too had a an instantly recognizable theme song. It was uh the the Taras theme from Gone with the Wind, um, and that that would come on, and the movie's title, the the program's title card would come up on screen, and it was it, it was cheap and and simple. It was a clapperboard, on which was written the million dollar movie, and that then cross faded into the name of the film, and the gimmick for this program was that it was like the early television version of a grindhouse yeah because they they would pick one movie and run it twice a night monday through friday four times a day saturday and sunday so over the course of seven days it was possible to see this one movie 18 times i bet you never did that (laughs) i I actually never did i tried i tried but you know my, my family objected to the middle of the week school night, you know, staying up late to watch movies practice. Which, so the most I ever got was maybe 10, you know, 10 viewings of a film and there, there were two films that that were, as far as my memory tells me, the two that I I watched the most. and one of them, is a natural. It's a no-brainer. I think if you know if million-dollar movie were around today, both of you, this would be one of your top films. And the other is this choice that I to the to, to this day I can't explain. Um, the first I'm one dying
1: to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the, the first one was King Kong. Now, oh, you know, yeah. who wouldn't watch King Kong every day if you had the chance, especially if you'd never seen it before, but only heard about it. And of course, growing up in New York, this was like our hometown movie. You know, this was, uh, you know, this was the movie about the giant monkey that, that climbs to the top of the Empire State Building. So uh, you could be sure that I would watch this film as many times as I possibly could. Um, now, the thing to remember is that um, this is 1950-whatever, and what we have in my family's house is a black-and-white television with a very modestly-sized screen. If it was 20 inches, I would think that was large, more likely 17, 18, 19 inches diagonally, with an over-the-air antenna. Um, So the picture was inherently fuzzy, um and the film was regularly interrupted by commercials. You're never sure because of the the poor quality of the film and the fact that that this was not a pristine uh you know, a pristine uh uh print of the film that was being shown. You were never absolutely sure if King Kong was in fact biting one of the inhabitants of Skull Island in half or not, but you could believe it if you wanted to, and, and Lord knows I did. Um or, you know, you, you weren't absolutely sure how much he was actually pawing the gossamer gown off of Faye Ray, but you know, as uh you you could imagine that and, and hope for the best. Um so this was the film that 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 really was a transformational movie experience for me. It was the film first film that I can recall that um that made a, a huge imprint on me um, that, you know, that excited me in a way that up until this point, only a few books ever did. Um, and bef- and it was before movie started, uh, music started to have that kind of an impact. Um, and, and to this day, it's pretty much impossible for me to watch King Kong, to watch this original version of King Kong without at some point, without me realizing it, I'm seven years old again, you know, and I'm having the same viewing experience as I did, you know, half a century or more ago.
1: Do you do you, do you buy copies of the DVD where vintage ads have been edited <laughs> in just to give me the full immersive experience?
2: Talcum powder. You know? <laughs> the the other film to answer your question is uh, is one that I watched. I don't know, maybe seven times that week, and it was a little fantasy film. Called One Touch of Venus, and never, never t- heard of this movie. <laughs> okay, so it's it's this fantasy. It's based on a play from the 1930s, and it's a, a fantasy film set in a very naturalistic setting. Uh, this man, and I think I'm, I'm 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 believing it was Robert Walker, but I could be wrong. But he he's a, a, a clerk in a department store, and. And there's this statue that the department store owner has bought and, and put on display in the department store. And it's very comely and very lovely. And it's this ancient, you know, this ancient uh, artifact that, that, that has been unearthed. And, and the clerk one night he's working late and he impulsively kisses the statue and And the statue magically transforms into the Roman goddess of love, Venus, who, you know, who comes alive and hijinks ensue. And, um, and I remember just something about that film was just, compelling and charming and maybe pre-sexually scintillating uh, or titillating Uh, it was also it's also a musical and i remember vividly one song from it that has become kind of a minor part of the uh the american songbook canon and it's a song called speak low when you speak low and i can you know to this day i can hear that wafting over the soundtrack
1: I think we'll we'll have to ask Anders to edit that into the, into the background <laughs> I can find it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so so those are those are the two uh, the the two major uh, films that I remember for a Million Dollar Movie.
1: So that's a wonderful um, juxtaposition, and I've I've never heard of uh, One Touch of Venus, but I've just added it to my watch list. You're right; it was Robert Walker, and and uh, and Venus is played by Ava Gardner, which I could uh, readily believe uh, for a. For a young pre prepubescent man, <laughs> for a prepubescent boy, you know uh, that as a statue coming to life and turning out to be Abe Gardner, that could be quite um, uh, quite a, a, an experience. Um, and Robert Walker, such a sad story. Like, oh. we, I wish we had had more of him. He's he's sort of in some ways he's the Philip Seymour Hoffman of that era, isn't mm-hmm. he? You know the the that that was never bad in anything and just leaves such a sense of. Um, you know unfulfilled uh potential um, and
2: and I have I've always had a sort of strange sentimental attachment to Robert Walker because his for me his greatest role he played a character who has a, who shares a name with me he played right. Bruno Anthony in Strangers on a Train and that of course is my last name so there you go Please, how can I fix this if you don't stand still?
1: Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's a little overworked, maybe, but I'm all right.
2: You're moving! Was it you who kissed me? You're talking. You're alive. Well, of course I'm alive. What did you think I was?
1: Well, I'm not very bright. I thought you were a statue.
2: (laughs) Excuse me. Brandy. smelling salts. Spirits of ammonia. Poor mortal. Are you frightened? Frightened? Uh, I don't know the meaning of the word. Why, you darling, you are frightened.
1: So this is so we've 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 gone through the first we've we've been in the the family room I'm imagining with the grainy images. Um, so what's the next uh, what's the next step on this uh, uh, cinematic uh, uh, voyage of discovery?
2: Well, I want to stay in the family room for just a little bit more because as I got a, as I got older and um, was able to uh, negotiate or trick my family in one way or another into staying up late on the weekends i became a devotee of a movie uh watching experience that happened on a friday night and a saturday night and it it always went under different names depending on what channel was airing it but it was always a horror movie or a monster movie or a science fiction movie you know it the uh, horror theater chiller theater whatever whatever you want to call it um and um it probably was you know was uh it, well it was not probably it was actually very very central to my my movie education um the core, the core, of course, for the Universal Studio canon. So you you would, you know, this is where I got to see Frankenstein and Dracula for the first time and the mummy movies and and the Wolfman and the various spouses and sons and daughters and houses of Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and whatever. Um and none of these, I must point out, were the later uh, Hammer films. Those were far too new to actually. Many of them hadn't been even filmed yet, so because we're still in the late 1950s. Um, yeah, that's and, right. And so, and so, I'm I'm watching these horror movies, and. Um, And a very interesting thing happened. For some reason, the the, the inner mythology that I created was that sitting in front of the glowing television was a safe space. So, you know, while I was there, I was okay. But over the course of the 90 minutes of, of this program, nature would inevitably call. And so I had to train myself to control my my instincts to go to the bathroom to the commercial breaks and then figure out, you know, again, go into training so that I was able to run up the stairs from the living room up to the second floor where the bathroom was, get into that bathroom, do whatever was needed in the bathroom, get back down on those stairs and back in front of the television before two things happened. Before the movie started again, and before any of the creatures from the movie was able were able to capture me while I was on the staircase. Um, so, you know, those these were the twin motivators here.
1: Very important uh, to uh, have the uh, parents absolutely. Not. <laughs> absolutely. It, Am I right? Is this an era is this the era of vampira you know introducing the movies and or
2: that that was that started to come in um it, it became like a movie uh, a horror movie arms race um some of it had to do with who would you know who would had have access to the better films but uh, eventually, everybody had access to all the same films, so they'd all been shown so many times that you needed to somehow up the ante, and so hosts started appearing. And Vampira was one. The other one, very very popular in New York City, came to us from Philadelphia, where he had been popular before, and that was Zachary. Um, and this was uh-huh. a, this is a man named John Zachary who used his last name because it sounded eerie and scary and he would come on in his you know count dracula uh uh, top and tails and with you know cadaverous makeup like real john Carradine style makeup with the 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 cheekbones and the hollowed out cheeks and (laughs) and he had props and and uh he had a you know his wife he claimed that his wife was in the coffin next to him and he would have a ongoing conversation with her during the course of the movie. So that I was of two minds about that because I, I thought he was entertaining, but to me it, it was a distraction from the whole point, which was to to watch these movies. And so it seemed kind of cheap. Um entertaining but 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 cheap. The other thing that I wanted to say about this particular v- movie watching venue was that there came a time when the as 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 i think i implied earlier the the stock of films was pretty much used up and so they started feeding into it science fiction films um and uh it got to a point where it was probably 70 horror 30 you know, thirty percent science fiction, um, and it pretty much stayed around there. Uh, but in in nineteen the nineteen fifties and the very early nineteen sixties, science fiction films there were really two kinds. One were the you know the, the the classic science fiction films, like you know a rocket ship going to the moon or another planet or you yeah. know uh, something like that. But Probably more important and certainly more interesting, even to my eight, nine, ten-year-old brain, were the Cold War films disguised as science fiction films. Yeah. Um, There were, you know, they were, some of them were like overtly anti communist uh, films like the Red Planet Mars or atomic war anxiety films uh, like the Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Um, And it, you know, those pods, we know what those pods are. We (laughs) know that they're the godless atheistic communists who are coming to take over our land. And we have to be ever wakeful because if If we go to sleep, they'll be there.
1: You know,
2: the commies will be there waiting. Um,
1: That is is a phenomenally effective film. Like, it is is pulse-racingly exciting and just, you know, exactly the right amount of creepy. And um, it's just one of the great, Hollywood B-movies. I, I, I love Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, and the remake too. It, I was going
2: to say, and the, the, the remake is one of those, those rare remakes that I think it's just as good. I'm not going to say it's better. It's just totally different. It's got the same story, the same plot, but it's now – it's not about the communists. It's about – Southern California or Northern California and you know and and the ethos of of that particular part of the country. I, I mentioned the Red Planet Mars. Have either of you seen the Red Planet Mars?
1: No, I haven't.
2: I haven't seen oh, it. Okay. You gotta let me tell you about this film. <laughs> okay. Nobody has seen the Red Planet Mars, but I think it is one of the great bad movies of all time it opens with a, a a husband and wife scientist team who are searching the cosmos for signals from space and they've got these two precocious adorable kids and you know they're 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 kind of at a loss for they, they think they're getting a signal from outer space and yeah. they don't know how to communicate they don't know what the common you know the lingua franca could be and the boy the young boy who's who's a you know a precocious 8-year-old he's um he's offering people he's offering his family dessert and he says to them how about pie and the wife and the husband look at each other and they say, of course, pi, it's a universal constant. They'll know what that is. So they, 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 trans, they transmit the first five digits of pi and the signal from outer space sends back the next four digits. So they're able to establish communication with this, wow. uh, with this entity. And they realize that these signals are coming from Mars. And, and over time we see that they're able to decode the messages and what they discover is that Mars is a utopia uh it's almost god help us a marxist utopia everything is shared in common there is no war there's no hunger everybody gets along everybody has enough there's no there's no scarcity now this as you might expect causes a great deal of turmoil in the west and in the united states Um, and then something happens then the next message comes in and what it says, this next message says, you have been having all this turmoil on your planet. And the reason that you're having turmoil on Earth is because you have strayed from biblical teaching. And we understand very quickly that Jesus is, was, ever will be on Mars. Um, of course. yeah. Well, of that's course. Now. Ah, okay. <laughs> now, the film cuts. And now <laughs> we're in the Andes. And um and in the Andes, we, we're up in the snow covered peak and we and we pull in onto a hut with a big radio antenna jutting out of the top of it. And we go inside and there's this uh mad ex-Nazi scientist who is of course, yes, yes. <laughs> <then, I'm... laughs> Who is <laughs> South, America. South America Nazis? Yeah, and 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 he's busy, you know, tapping away at his at his telegraph key, and then all of a sudden there's a rumbling, a rumbling, and there's an avalanche, and you know, and his little station gets destroyed. But we see him running away and escaping, and then we cut back, and the messages keep coming in about the you know Jesus on Mars, and we then have this montage of what this has the impact this has all the around the world we get these headlines about you know jesus on mars and um and uh you know we we have the the pope making a statement and religious leaders making a statement and we go we cut to russia where a bearded orthodox priest followed by a group of peasants, goes out to the crossroads and digs and digs and digs up an icon that that he had buried there. And he becomes the leader of this anti-Soviet mob that take over the Kremlin and establish a theocracy in Russia. And so the world now has been transformed by Jesus sending messages from Mars. We cut back to the scientist couple and and they're they're now world famous and they're dealing with this fame and uh, they're still in their lab working hard and all of a sudden the door slams open and there's with wiping the snow off of his shoulders there's the scientist the nazi scientist who has somehow traveled up from peru and found his way to you know the heartland of america um and he holds them at gunpoint as he explains to them that the original messages – you're not going to believe this. The original messages were fakes. He had sent them.
1: Oh, he had sent the them. Nazis. and <laughs>
2: Bounce them off of a cloud and bounce them back so they seemed like they were coming from Mars, and he did that under the under the uh, direction of his Soviet masters to destabilize the West.
1: Well, it didn't work very well, did it?
2: And he says, but you know. Who thought you would be smarter than me because you sent out your own faked messages. You sent out those faked messages from Jesus because, you know, it couldn't have been me because by that time, my station was covered by this avalanche of snow. And the husband and wife look at each other because they know they didn't send out any faked messages. And then the machine starts to click and another message comes in and simultaneously several things happen one is that the wife and the husband they realize they can't let this get out because too much good has happened in the world so the wife asks the husband if she she, could light her cigarette knowing that the spark will send the lab up and the scientist seeing this message come through and realizing that it's got to be Jesus, he fires his gun. So we don't know whether it's the cigarette lighter or the gun, but the lab explodes and the scientists and the two American scientists are gone in a conflagration. And now we cut to a joint session of congress and the president is standing there with the two kids you know the adorable kids and Uh and the president says your you know your parents were heroes the world will never forget them and we were able to decipher the first part of the last message that was coming in when they were destroyed by what this freak accident because they don't know about the nazi scientist and the message that they were able to decode was come to me, my good and faithful. And then the message cuts off. And he says, and we all know where that was going. That's from the Gospel of Matthew. You have done well, my good and faithful servants. And that's how the movie ends.
1: And you're saying this is not a good film. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds absolutely astonishing. Um, I just looked it up, and and there's some great uh, casting in there. Willis Boucher as the president. Uh, We've got Peter Grace. It's like, B-movie central. I love the sound of that. Um, (laughs) That's bizarre. I love how uh, you go back and really sort of are prepared to troll through. There's some weird, weird movies that were made. uh, And not, you know, like, you don't, they weren't, uh, you know, obscure Czech films. This is Hollywood Studios, like, producing this stuff. That's amazing. What an incredible.
2: Well, I think part of the reason for that is that, the Hollywood studios were also, at the same time, trying to fight back the 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 uh, the push of, of the censors and the McCarthyites. You know, they were trying to prove that they were not commie sympathizers, that they were red blooded Americans. Um, you know, so that they you know they they made these films that were either overtly or seemingly covertly um, pr- propaganda items.
1: Guys, allow me to interrupt for just a second here to fill you in a little bit on uh, what's been going on in my sleep, energy, and uh, mental acuity life of late. Uh, Because, uh, you know, as you know, uh, with the baby at home, uh, getting enough sleep and thereby having enough energy can be rather tricky. And the traditional method for dealing with that is to, uh, well, pretend it isn't happening and drink loads of coffee, which doesn't really help because then um, you load yourself with caffeine. And in my case, you just lie awake at night uh, feeling worried and anxious and unable to sleep and the um, problem just self-perpetuates. And and the screaming babies keep you awake as well. Well, yes, exactly. And, you know, you kind of need some energy to be a parent these days or any days, really. Um, So I looked around for other solutions and I found uh, Magic Mind, which is a mental performance shot. It has given me mental energy. It has given me a lot of focus it has allowed me to cut down on coffee um and it really has helped my stress levels and my sleep and because i'm also a podcaster it's helped me to be more creative and so i can come up with new ways of torturing my brother on this medium bet you appreciate that right i guess excellent uh, <laughs> So what's in Magic Mind? It's all natural ingredients. Don't worry. I'm not selling you some kind of potion. There is no sugar. They're nut free. They're vegan. Um, It contains matcha. I'm aware of matcha yeah you're, you're a matcha man um and um, matcha's great uh, it's natural caffeine slow release keeps you going throughout the day it's got other wonderful sort of excitingly named ingredients in it like rhodiola rosea a herbal breakthrough uh which um uh it, it helps um, increase uh, mental clarity and reduce fatigue um so if you are intrigued by this or if you're a new parent or if you're just a bit stressed and sleep deprived why don't you go to magicmind.com forward slash homes that's h-o-l-m-e-s magicmind.com forward slash homes and use that very special offer code homes20 h-o-l-m-e-s 20 holmes two zero to get up to 56% off your subscription um, and this will be good for the next 10 days. Um, go to that link. Get that offer code. Because uh, this is a really cool thing. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone in the world of, of of, of like, you know, cool, productive uh, people with lots of followers. Um, and, uh, you know, the Kardashians. They like this. Uh, so uh, us and the Kardashians, whatever they're called, the K- 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 Kardashians. Kardashians. If you like the Kardashians and you like us, Weird combination, but we both like Magic Mind, so yeah, go get it. Um, It's got a one hundred percent money back guarantee, no questions asked. If you don't like Magic Mind, they will reimburse you. Um, Yeah, so go to that link: www.worldwideweb.magicmind.com/homes. Homes twenty is the offer code. Use it, get focused, and reclaim your brain.
0: There it is, the red planet Mars, for over 2,000 years the symbol for war. Here is a new experience in excitement, a new sensation in suspense, as men open the door on the unknown powers of space, to learn the incredible secrets of the red planet Mars. Secrets that might destroy us in one moment.
1: You'll be the
2: next to advance science. And maybe us. Right into oblivion! Trist, look!
1: Nine! Two! Six! Linda, we've done it. Dear Lord, don't make us sorry. Yeah, well, I don't
2: the susten- them? This keep us up, you'll need the army to help you. Quick, get going!
0: Atomic energy, the hydrogen bomb, flying saucers, and now, secrets beyond belief from the red planet Mars. Secrets that threaten the world with total destruction as countless millions in every corner of the globe invoked the greatest power of all to save their lives.
2: You do think me a fool! Say where you are!
1: Give me a light. Don't! Don't!
2: Now I'm ready to leave the living room.
1: Okay, venture out into the mean street.
2: <laughs> so, uh, you know, as as I said before, the first you know my first exposure to films were, was on television with black and white and commercial interruptions, and and I think the black and white notion is significant because somewhere deep in my lizard brain to this day is the notion that that is the true and proper language of cinema. Mm-hmm. That color is nice. But, you know, color is often um, a distraction or garish. In fact, in the 1950s into the early 60s, many of the color films that I would see in the movie theaters, the color was really loud technicolor really garish and you know and bold and there's nothing really subtle about the color
1: and you can't with certain tech i mean unless you're jack cardiff or someone truly remarkable you mean you can't do chiaroscuro and various other cinematic techniques Mm -hmm. that made black and white films of this era so successful you know Mm -hmm. so you 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 lose shadow which feels like such an important part of um Uh, of movie making and I know exactly the kind of thing you mean where it's just oversaturated and visually um sort of just it it looks fake you know (laughs) I've seen
0: I've seen uh, I've seen people share online clips of it's a wonderful life but colorized and it looks I mean it's different from like noir or chiaroscuro doesn't have really have that much of that but it looks bad there's a reason why that film was shot in black and white and and, and it looks good in that oh, yeah. format and it's like and also like i mean i've seen someone try to do the same with casablanca and try and colorize that and it's like no that's it's black and white for a reason and i mean i remember we had on vhs uh john ford's rio grande and that was that was actually a the colorized version when
1: it was actually originally yes black that's and white. right Gosh, what amazing memory you have. Um, yeah. The, the colorizing that's a, that's a sin unto itself. Uh, the colorizing black and white films, that's, that's should be punishable by some kind of uh, uh you know, legal means. Um,
2: to, uh, a, a, a quick, quick anecdote about it's a wonderful life. And then a quick anecdote about black and white versus color. Um, it's a wonderful life. Is it's is it a good film. I enjoy it. I watch it. Um, I don't watch it religiously or even irreligiously, but, There is a story as to why it has become uh, such a holiday, such a a Christmas cliché, and it has to do with copyright. And the the copyright owners mistakenly let the copyright lapse so that at a certain point, which coincided with the rise of the VCR – That film was available and in the public domain for about five or six years. And so for that five or six year period, anybody who wanted to could get a hold of a print and release a cassette of It's a Wonderful Life. And it was during that period that it became such a ubiquitous Christmas movie. It hadn't been that before that. Before that, you know, the Christmas movie was A Christmas Carol, Um, but – with, you know, with, with that copyright lapse for a couple of years, the other, the other interesting tiny little anecdote about black and white and color has to do with n- Mike Nichols and the making of Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, which, as you, as you know, is, was released in black and white. And yeah. apparently it was intended to be a color film. It was a big budget film with, with Richard Burton and with Elizabeth Taylor and George Siegel and Sandy Denny and major stars. Um The first rushes came in from the first couple of days shooting. And Elizabeth Taylor, who was like 38 when she made the film, was supposed to be playing Martha, who's in her 50s. And the age makeup just wasn't working. It just wasn't realistic enough. And so the only way that Nichols could think of to make the film was to shoot it in black and white. And in that way, the age makeup was convincing, was credible.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like the black and white also works in the film's advantage, given the sort I, of... I agree. Yeah. Yeah, the tone of the film as well. I feel like you'd be sitting there going like, what have they done to Elizabeth Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> if, they had, if they had originally shown it in color. I mean, I'm
1: often thinking that when I look at Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> what have they, and, and Richard Burton, for that matter. <laughs>
2: When I, was, uh, when I was growing up in New York City, um, and I think this actually may have been a national thing, not just in New York City, uh, we talked about Christmas movies. Well, there, was also, there were also a couple of Easter films, and one of the Easter films, which, which was shown once a year, every year, uh, was The Wizard of Oz. Now, I, I've been struggling my whole life as to why this was an Easter film. I haven't come up with any any satisfying answer to that question yet, but nevertheless, it was on every year at Easter time. Um, So that's how I first watched The Wizard of Oz—not in a movie theater, but on television, on a black and white television—and I thought this is a great film, it's a wonderful film, one of my favorites. I, you know, I'll probably watch this film for my whole life. And so we jump ahead to uh, when I'm in college, and some. Film club or film studies group is showing the Wizard of Oz. And I thought, well, now that would be a nice, ironic thing to do with my ironic friends, because I'm, I'm an ironic person that's very much part of my brand at this point. So, so we went to see the Wizard of Oz, and I'm sitting there watching it. And you could have picked me up off the floor when she gets to Oz, and all of a sudden the movie's in color. I had no idea whatsoever that any part of this movie was in color. I love, I,
1: by the way, I love the idea of teenage Richard trying to play it cool with Richard, <laughs> and then suddenly the film's like, oh, goes <laughs> like, "What have they done to the movie?" <laughs> um, that's brilliant. <laughs> so so we've um we're uh, we're in the we're in the, the the transition period here of of escaping the the small screen and and i guess you know mo- venturing out into the world of uh of 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 the movie house i guess what what happens next
2: so um when i started going to movies with regularity it was totally a social activity um the uh And I was eight or nine. My friends and I would go on always on a Saturday afternoon for matinee to the local movie theater. And there were a couple that we could walk to in Brooklyn. Um, there were a couple that we had to be dropped off at or when we got a little bit older, take the bus to. Um, and these screenings always featured... Um, uh, it's kind of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest we had matrons you know these were these were very stern disciplinarians who were in uniform you know they were in a a a very um forbidding uh you know Elsa Cleb kind of uniform um yeah. and uh they would walk up and down the aisles moderating our behavior and sending more than one of us out of the theater for misbehaving um they had flashlights people now exactly (laughs) they had flashlights they would flash them on us to you know to keep us from any keep us from any inappropriate behavior um i would love to have them back
0: today so that they would (laughs) kick people out if they take out their phone and like take a picture of the screen and stuff because that is a very weird thing and no 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 one turns their phones no one turns their phones off when they go to the movie theater
2: Not at all. Oh, you know, my gosh. I, I went... you've, you've
0: really, you've really, you've hit a sore spot in Anderson. <laughs> no, <but it> was, <laughs> I remember one time, this years ago, I can't remember what movie it was. It was in um the it was in Copenhagen. I think it was during the afternoon or something, or late afternoon showing, and someone didn't turn their phone off, but they didn't put the phone on silent. So his ring, he it, he, it was like the full ringtone or whatever it was, and he dropped the phone between the seats. <laughs> So he was trying to get his phone while it was loudly ringing during the film. And it was just like, it completely took me out of it. I can't remember what I was watching. Maybe I, so I, maybe the film didn't do that. It's so bad. You can't remember what you were watching. It, just, but just it, was just but it was so angry. It's like, I'm always quite tempted to like throw popcorn at people. I was like, turn off your phone <laughs> kind of thing.
2: You know, there's a, there's a very sad story that I once heard about documentary films and the Oscars. And I, I've, I heard this from a couple of sources, so I kind of think it was true that uh, up until maybe 15 or 20 years ago, uh, when they would be in the process of nominating documentary films for Best Documentary, the nominating process – Includes only people who are in that particular field, so that documentarians nominate documentaries, cinematographers nominate cinematography, etc. And working under the premise that 90% or more of the documentary filmmakers were either in Los Angeles or in New York, they would arrange... A week of marathon screenings at a theater in Los Angeles and a theater in New York, and all documentarians could sit there. And when they came into the theater, and these things would be ganged, you know, so they would just, they would splice all the movies together, and so they would run nonstop. Um, and you would, be, when you walked into the theater, you would be given a flashlight. And you were instructed so that you would sit there and start to watch a documentary by, you know, I don't know, the Mazleys or something. And you would watch it until you didn't like it. And when you didn't like it, you would turn your flashlight on and start streaking the, you know, the screen with the beam of light. And once enough people had done that so that it was hard to view the film, they would switch over to the next projector and start the next documentary. And this is how they would call the documentaries.
0: It's like the equivalent of tomatoes. That- people on a stage (laughs) in a theater performance yeah that's really bad imagine being the guy like putting putting so much work into your documentary and you feel like oh this is my time to shine and then someone just shows a flashlight at the screen you'd probably feel like i'm never gonna do this ever again
2: this Uh, is my time to be shined on
1: yeah exactly
2: oh Oh, my god
1: um Actually, you know, little little name drop. Al Mazel's was actually a, a great uh, personal friend of my uh, uh, in laws, and and Lily and her sister very much grew up alongside um, that family. And uh, his daughter helped your daughter Richard right. uh, deliver Sarah. her first child. Yes, yeah, so yeah. there's a nice little uh, connection there. Um, Anyway, um, you see, I told you we're all one big <laughs> family. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm. Making, so you're, in the, you're in the movie house I'm with your nerdy well friends, getting getting yeah. harassed by a militarized usher and usherettes.
2: And I would say that my my diet of films broke down as ten percent westerns, forty percent science fiction, fifty percent horror, um, and and there was a, there was a genre of horror films that was. That became incredibly popular in in the United States in the fifties and sixties. They were all the product of a of a, a masterful Schleichmeister, uh Schlockmeister named William Castle.
0: Yeah, and I, he I'm,
2: specialized.
0: Yeah, I'm a I love dude, the, oh, all the I love all the stories about what he the all the gimmicks like with the tingler. Well, that's, yeah, yes, with, that's
2: what I wanted to talk about. Two oh, of those really? gimmicks. Oh, well. <laughs> yes, so one of them was for a, a film. Called uh, The House on Haunted Hill, which is an entirely forgettable film, entirely forgettable, except for one fact about it. Mm-hmm. And that is the gimmick for this film was something that Castle called uh, Emergo. He came up with these futuristic sounding names for these little, little. Uh, kitschy gimmicks that he had Uh, at a key point in the action in this film uh, the the haunting on Haunted Hill begins and a skeleton appears on screen and starts to menace the characters but he wants to involve the audience so over to the right of the screen there's this area that had been curtained off and the curtain is pulled back and there's a life-size iridescent skeleton on a motorized pulley that begins to move out over the audience, sending thrills and chills throughout the theater. And I I saw the movie once where that happened and I've read about other screenings of it. Invariably, the, the skeleton didn't didn't do well because it was immediately pelted with, you know, with candy and popcorn and and anything else that that people could find to to throw at it. And Thank I always God no thought that that, that well, I always thought that that Andrew Lloyd Webber stole the crashing chandelier and Phantom from from William Castle and you know the House on Haunted Hill. And the other film was one that you mentioned, Anders, The Tingler. And I, I, I recall this film with great affection. The, the notion in this film, the, the big concept, is that scientists discover because people are in this community are dying of fright. And their autopsies show that their spines are crushed when they, you know, when they go into these paroxysms of terror. And they eventually, a, a scientist discovers that there is this creature called the tingler which somehow gets into your body at moments of great terror and latches itself around your spine and sends this tingling pressure throughout your body. And the only way to survive is to scream, scream as loud as you can. And so people do that and they're able to survive and they're able to, you know, overcome this, this monster in this, this little community. But, As the film seems to be coming to a conclusion, uh, Vincent Price, and of course it's Vincent Price, he comes out, breaks character, breaks the fourth wall, talks to the audience in the theater and says, ladies and gentlemen, I am, I have to tell you that a tingler has gotten loose in your theater. And the only way to protect yourselves is to scream. Now, Before people start screaming, let me tell you what what William Castle did. He went out and bought hundreds and hundreds of army surplus airplane wing de-icers. And the wing de-icer was basically nothing but a vibrating motor. And so he would install these vibrating motors behind uh, numerous seats in the movie theater so that when – when Vincent Price came out and said, "Beware the Tingler!" scream, scream, they would flip the switch, and you know, uh, scores of people in the movie theater would sort of jump up out of their seats because all of a sudden the Tingler was tingling their seats and causing it to vibrate and jump, and mayhem ensued.
1: I mean, the, this is—it's really astonishing because I mean, <laughs> the, the, the the given. The that you know, movies are open to everyone. I mean, it's not impossible to imagine someone with, I don't know, a heart condition or a, 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 a nervous disposition, a traumatized war veteran, for example. Like, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who could be very or, vulnerable or, to this kind or, of or or, or,
2: or you know, somebody who de ices airplanes for a living, right? Exactly. Yeah, the last thing <laughs> well, they want to see two things on that one is that in another of his films, he covered, he covered his 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 uh his took us on that because the film offered you a uh, an insurance policy if you were frightened to death he would pay off a million dollar insurance policy you know everybody yeah. got a policy when they walked into the theater
1: frightened to death yeah okay
2: <laughs> the other was that this was even a bridge too far for william castle because after the first week or so there was tremendous backlash to this and he in fact had to stop doing it and and remove those de-icers from the theaters that he had installed them in
0: i i, I read an interview with um with john waters the director he he's a he, he was a fan of william castle and he talked about how he would sometimes go to theaters that were showing the tingler and try and see where if they had like the the shocking the shot the machine under the seats and stuff and yeah it's amazing that he 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 did that uh, and yeah it's I, I don't think you could ever do that today because you would get quote, cancelled very quickly, I guess.
2: Well now they now they have to they have to and, and I think rightly announced if they're going to be strobes in a in a in a movie yeah, or in, yeah, in a theater yeah, yeah. production. Because they have such a deleterious effect if you have epilepsy.
1: Yeah. Um, that's yeah, that is quite I mean the the, the whole idea of um making the movie going experience something that's beyond the film. As if, you know, the the answer to get people, you know, because you're competing with television, as you, you know, we've been describing that television is where you encounter movies. And so why, what do the movie studios and the cinemas need to do? And it's, you know, they always seem to come up with a million answers none of which are make movies that people want to go see in the cinema. And, and instead you get, you know, Cinerama or, or Cinemascope or, or, or all these gimmicks and tricks, which, you know, you, and you end up with these huge movies, many of which are hampered by the the gimmickry of, and I'm talking about blockbusters, not B-movies, that like uh, House on Haunted Hill. Um you know, the, the, the 3D or the, you know, various other things that actually um, hurt the quality of the film. I remember years ago, Anders, we were watching the film The Law and Jake Wade. Do you remember that? And there's a scene yeah. where they are attacked by Indians. And at various points, I think they were using 3D in the film. You you just have this image of a- arrows being shot at the, at the, you know, the audience. But what it really uh, looks like is people throwing twigs at the camera. <laughs> and, yeah. And we
0: were just laughing our heads at them
1: there was a I i mean the the third
0: friday the 13th film they decided to shoot the whole film in 3d and the whole experience i've seen like a behind the scenes documentary and the whole the whole the the, the the because the cameras were so big and like the cranes to use them were so big as well they would often break down and also like the actors had to remember be like oh we have to get the stick to make the gimmick work we has to come into the frame here and you can see one of the actors trying to make sure he's getting the stick (laughs) in the right place as well. It's just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it does kind of ruin the sort of quality of the film a little bit. I mean, it, it is Friday the 13th, but yeah, but it's, (laughs) just, but because they're shooting it in 3d, and because it's very aware, you know, you're aware of that. It does kind of take you out of the movie a little bit.
2: You know, one of the, uh, one of the most successful and invidious, um, Attempts to add kind of extra cinematic value to uh, the film going experience has to do with movie ratings. I remember reading an article about movie ratings. Movie ratings came in um, in 1970 around there. And most people think, well, you know, it's, it's, it's something that helps parents decide what is an appropriate film for their kids to see or what indeed they would like to see. And, and I'm sure there's truth in that, but the real thing about movie ratings is the value of the R rating and the X rating, because in 1970, what you also have is the explosion of made-for-TV movies, but made-for-TV movies that are at a time when there's pretty much still only the the three broadcast networks. So yeah. what an R rating or an X rating told you was that you have to go to the movie to see this. You're never going to be able to see this at home. You know, you can keep all your TV movies. You're going to never going to see any nudity or hear any real language. You have to go to the movies to experience that.
0: I think, like these days, it's like physical media. You have to, it's like, because, like, for some, like, I mean, there was the thing about, I think it was last year or the year before, it was the thing about French Connection where they, it was being on Disney Plus and they had cut out like a little bit of the movie. Whereas
1: you know a, a racial, he uses the n word, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They so cover... they, they, which a, it... a very important part of understanding his character. You know, that yeah. this is a, a racist New York cop. Yeah, yeah.
0: And they also did it for um, the Tom Hanks movie, Splash, the one with Daryl Hannah. Like, because she walks around and she's like naked and stuff, and they actually digitalized underwear on her to to cover up the nudity and stuff. But in the in the DVD, it's it's it is what it it's it's it is what it is kind of thing.
1: And don't scream, it may kill you. Scream. Scream. Keep screaming. Scream for your lives. It's here. It's over here. Help.
2: Help. Look out. It's under the
1: seat. Ladies and gentlemen, the the tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger.
2: We will now resume the showing of the movie the final thing that i wanted to talk about were the what i call the the real movie palaces um and so i'm i'm jumping ahead decades here to the uh mostly the 1980s and i'm in my 30s now and my obsession with films has continued to grow, and what I find myself taking greater and greater advantage of are are the revival houses, and there are many, many of them in New York City at the time. Uh, I live on the Upper West Side, and you know this neighborhood was just filled with with really great revival houses during that period. I didn't live here then, um, but you had the Thalia, you had the Regency, you had the Metro, you had the New Yorker, among among others. They're gone yeah. now. Um, mostly oh. killed by VCRs and then DVDs and and New York real estate prices. But my favorite of these revival houses was uh, the one that I spent by far the most time in was a little theater In the east village called theater 80 st mark's Um, that was its address 80 st mark's place right off of second avenue on 8th street in st mark's place Um, it had opened up i think in the 1920s as a small nightclub then it had transformed in the 50s into an off-off broadway theater where in fact in fact i think it was one of the first places that showed um The uh, Three Penny Opera, uh, you know, the theatrical production of the Three Penny Opera in the the United States. Um, And by the 70s, though, it was operating as a revival house. And I would say I spent something like maybe 75, 80 percent of my Saturday afternoons throughout the late 1970s in through the 1980s in there. And my my very patient wife, Catherine, let me do this and I hope had more interesting things to do with her own time. Um, But I, I probably saw hundreds of films during these Saturday visits. The films were almost always programmed as double features, usually and sometimes even triple features uh most my most vivid memories are of the many 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 noir films i saw but they also had marx brothers marathons or charlie chan marathons or um, preston sturges marathons or laurel and hardy marathons. so it was a really uh important venue for me for my my cinema education and I remember with with such clarity one particular Saturday afternoon where I got to see one after another all three versions of the Maltese Falcon and I you know of That's course right. knew There's the m- multiple know, versions yeah. of it yeah I, mean, I, I I I knew the John Huston Bogart one I knew it I had seen it a few times by this point in my life but I had I had maybe heard that there was another version, but had no idea that there were two other versions. Um, there is one from I think 1931 uh, called The Maltese Falcon, starring Ricardo Cortez, um, and that was followed a few years later by a film starring Warren William and Betty Davis called Satan Met a Lady, um, Great where title. the yeah, well the the, the fat man has become a fat woman played by Alison Skipworth um and the you know the uh the falcon is no longer a falcon I think it's a it's a jeweled cornucopia that is that is in turn filled with jewels um and again just just absolutely astonishing to see all three films and to see them together um, and to see them in really good quality prints um and to see the different ways the evolution of the Sam Spade character from a um a wisecracking sleazy corrupt guy both the Ricardo Cortez and the and the Warren William are that but you know by the time Bogart gets a hold of the he's you know he's still you know, wisecracking, but there's a complexity and a fatalism that you know that that just was totally totally escaped for the other the other two productions. And that wasn't that wasn't what they wanted to do. That wasn't they were what the film they were interested in making. But in any case, Theater Eighty St. Marks, uh, which is now I think something else entirely i think it may be closed entirely but it's probably the place where i got whatever insights and education that i have about the theater they were happened they happened on east 8th street in greenwich village
0: wow that's amazing i think like for me growing up the cinema that (laughs) meant a lot when we were growing up in london i think it was the um we grew, we grew up in Clapham it was the Clapham Picturehouse house cinema which uh, I mean we went to that a bunch of times and it was so cool every yeah. time because like some sometimes they would have like a screen that was like right near the entrance when you go in but then like other there was another door that went to like all the other screens which were in the other side of the building and it was kind of like as a kid for me it was like you know it's like you're going into a different place it's like a maze and it's like it's it's like ooh what's gonna happen and everything and I remember it always being quite like, excited it's like when you're going on a uh. roller coaster ride for the first time kind of thing
1: and it was the uh, yeah it was i always really there's a, particular, enjoyed that. there's a particular magic to going to a cinema in a city yeah uh, and i mean in the inner city and which is now rarer and rarer because they've been closing and, and uh you know to to come out of this highly profound private dark experience of being in the in the film and then suddenly to be in the hustle and bustle of new york or london or whatever and it's um It's thrilling, you know, to be then also be to be brought into that place, to be taken out of the noise and the and the um, the the the, whatever the carryings on of the city, and then taken into this 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 vault, you know, this quiet place of movies and magic. It's uh, Uh, it's really something, uh, and 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 yeah, it's not the same when you drive to a strip mall and 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 go into a huge multiplex. For
2: uh, for a dozen years or so, I would um, I would go by myself on a a Friday morning because in New York city when film opening dates still meant something, most first run films would open on a Friday. Um, So they could review it in the Friday paper and you get the weekend crowd. So I would go on a Friday morning to the lowest state theater, which is in times square in Manhattan. And I would go to the first screening of each new James Bond film. Um, And, And this was, I think, primarily, you know, the the Roger Moore era and the audience Mm -hmm. for this 10 in the morning screening on a Friday would basically be me and pimps,
1: you know. I was going to say, the time in the (laughs) 1970s, it's an interesting (laughs) crowd (laughs) at that point. (laughs) I I would have, yeah, I would have given anything to be a fly on the wall for your viewing of live and let die. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It would be interesting. But I mean, the thing about New York, of course, is that it's for so much of the time that you're living there and and growing up with the films. Some of the most iconic New York films are also being made. I mean, what was the experience, for example, of encountering? Um, I mean, there's a Woody Allen films, obviously, but but then think about something like um, the, the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is a sort mm-hmm. of household favorite of ours. But, which for me is one of the ultimate New York films because it tells a story that. Uh, most new Yorkers can can relate to which is having a total nightmare on the subway. Uh you know so it's like what was what was what did it feel like to to be sort of to, to be uh experiencing the new Hollywood's favorite backdrop, you know, as your living place but also seeing it on on screen.
2: Well for that film in particular, I have to tell you what we did as, you know, as cynical New Yorkers, we spent most of our time criticizing the verisimilitude of the subway and the travel time and yeah. no, the, the, the train can't be going where they say it's going it's <laughs> you know because at that time of day it skips those stops we all know that
0: <laughs> yeah. right yeah i should have thought of that i had uh, i had, there, I had there, that there, i had that with um sorry to interrupt i had that with no. uh one of the, i had that with one of the marvel films because there's a scene where like it's in it's in the second thor film which came out in 2013 there's a point where it's like I, i'm not going to explain the film but like some stuff happens and then he ends up in like a different part of london then he ends up in the tube and he's like how do i get to Greenwich park and he's like oh you just take this line and it's and it's a line that doesn't go to Greenwich park and and i'm watching this in london and going like Sorry, but that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh,
0: there's a lot of there's a lot of very very bad. Uh, but, but there's uh, like in Skyfall um, as well when they're sliding down yeah. the escalator. I was just, it's just like, gonna say you can't do that because you have the no smoking signs in between
2: the things. <laughs> so so boom, it's boom,
1: like you're boom, hitting boom, your butt every time, like <laughs> like that. A Nice. It's a nice idea, but uh, no. You um, know, I had
2: I had two particular experiences that that relate to that as well. One was. Um, going to see uh, Saturday Night Fever in a theater called the Lois Alpine. And the Lois Alpine uh, is, in fact, where the movie is largely set. So, you know, the the, the hardware store that uh, that the John Travolta carrier w- character works at the discotheque is right near the Alpine the discotheque actually was around the corner from my first apartment in Brooklyn. You know, okay. it was like 2001 Space Odyssey was right down the block. But going to see that movie in that theater with that audience, it was it was a, a hometown audience that had really strong opinions about the hardware store and the pizzeria and the discotheque and all the the other things that were happening and they expressed those opinions uh, with without reservation. And and the other one was very similar is going to see the first Godfather film at a theater called the Lois Oriental and that was right smack dab in the middle of uh a mafia tinged neighborhood uh that i actually grew up in called bensonhurst and i have to say that the people in that theater did not applaud for the police i can imagine (laughs) so yeah (laughs) and they thought that you know that Fredo got what he deserved and it was entirely, you know, understandable and, and it happened what should happen. Um, and, uh, that, you know, they, they very much were a partisan Paisan audience. But, um,
1: you know, as you, we, we've sort of mentioned a few times, you know, the, um, the era that, that, that comes, you know, after this is, uh, um, you know, the one where we suddenly are able to start having, uh, physical media of our own and, be able, and start to increasingly being able to have on demand, uh, access to the films we love. And I mean, you know, this is something that we grew up taking very much for granted. And so I want to explore a little bit with you, Richard, you know, what it was it like as someone who had perhaps dreamt of this, uh, possibility their whole life, but had never had the opinion, had the ability to, uh, to record and access, uh, home movies. And, you know, uh, especially as you know, as someone who's just become a parent, you know, being able to go to the cinema at that stage of life it, it becomes a lot more tricky. Um, so, you know, what what was that sort of transition like for you? Mm. Yeah.
2: I, in college, I knew slightly a, a guy who was the son of a someone who, at the time, was a very uh, well-known theater critic. The critic was named Walter Kerr, and I I knew his son in college, and I remember he told me one day, and I just was, my mind was blown by this. He said that his father loved silent comedy. You know, he loved like Chaplin and Keaton and, you know, and um, others of that ilk. And he had a, a home setup where he, and he owned copies of these films so he could watch them all the time. And and that to me, that just didn't seem connected to the to the real world. I just couldn't, I couldn't understand how that could be, how that could be possible, and and then there came a day. My my wife is an actress and an actor, and she, uh, at one point, early on in her career, she got cast by Edward Albee, the playwright, who was, who had decided that he would take a number of his one act plays and take them on tour around the country. And he would follow them and give lectures at local colleges in connection with the plays. So she's cast in this thing called all be directs all be. And before they go on tour, he has a party for the cast in his magnificent two story loft down in, in uh, Tribeca. And I go there And it's, you know, it's fascinating for me because I'm still as I started out this by saying I'm still very much in the theater world. And so actually meeting Edward Albee was uh, something that I never thought would be possible. But what I also encountered when I when I visited his loft for this party in his bedroom, which was up on the second story of this loft, he, you know, he led us on a tour and we touring through and on his in his bedroom at the foot of this gigantic bed um, was a pedestal, a really like a really like a Greek pedestal. And sitting on a pedestal, which is about four feet high, um, is a uh, television set and this new device, a videotape recorder. He had the very first Betamax that I ever saw and i just stayed there for most of the rest of the evening looking at this piece of technology and you know and and pressing the buttons and and watching something through you know through the video the magic of the video cassette um it it really took a while for me to wrap my head around that kind of um that 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 kind of access and so i think that i um I think one result was that I watched a lot of films that I knew nothing about just because they were there. You know, you would go to the video store and depending on the store, depending on the neighborhood, the depending on what was going on that weekend, they might have a good film. They might not have the film you want, but I never went home without a film to watch. Um, so I, I wound up inadvertently learning about things that I, you know, that I didn't know about, about films that I didn't know about, filmmakers that I, that I didn't know about. Um, And it wasn't, it wasn't an efficient way of, of learning. Um, There was no guide here to, you know, to help me weed out the chaff, but, but it was pleasurable, certainly.
1: We, um, I mean, I mean, I think we, we were, we're old enough to remember the 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 days of recorded vhs and it was a, it was a, an interesting feature of travelling to um uh, to denmark for the summer holidays for us was that our grandfather would um would look out for westerns on the uh, on on the tv guide and circle them and have them recorded for us and <laughs> each summer when we arrived there would be a new Selection of westerns, and of course, we had no access to the Danish TV guys. So arriving there would, we'd, we'd sort of rush in to see what which tapes they were, and uh, and 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 uh, you know which which westerns had been recording, and which had he had been able to uh, to get on uh, on VHS for us. That was a lot of uh, a lot of fun. And it it, it the, the whole principle of scarcity and, um, you know, the excitement at the possibilities of the technology. I mean, I I I wonder you know what is the next frontier going to be you know what when people uh you know um my daughter's age are uh, uh, sitting in, in, in 50 years time on whatever their equivalent of podcasts and being like, oh, I remember when you had to stream movies on a, on a streaming service instead of just uh, thinking in your brain that you want and then your glasses inject something into your eye and you experience the <laughs> film so, from the point of view of a character in the, you, know, do you it would probably be like, like go, what Apple has now with those
0: big glasses and you'd be something oh, like that. You know, I've seen like a video of someone on, on a very crowded, New York subway, and he's like typing away or doing something, and like people are just being normal and not having it. It's just like the one guy who's just got these big giant glasses
1: on. I would go and bash my hand on his imaginary keyboard. I, (laughs) I,
2: I, I have to tell you that 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 concept was something that was very attractive to me. Maybe. Maybe 15 years ago, at least 10 years ago, there was a product that hit the market that was basically a, a, a simplified and crude version of that where you would they would be with either goggles or glasses that that cabled into um, a small videotape player and it would project on screens where the you know the glass frames were uh the the movie and i really was interested in getting one except they the price point never got to where i wanted yeah. it to be and and then when i read a little bit more they said you know they don't work at all if you wear corrective lenses at all and the picture is fuzzy and you get a headache after about a half an hour sounds like it right i also remember reading that and i don't know if this is true but the story that i read is that sony uh at at the time in you know in the 60s and 70s sony was really at the cutting edge of technological innovation with you know with the walkman and with with the vcr and sony came up with both ways of showing videotape commercially both beta and vhs but anti uh trust Forces in various governments said you got to get rid of one of them, so they licensed the VHS technology to Philips, and they stuck with Beta. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm 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 a a badly advised early adopter on so many technologies because <laughs> I stuck with Beta as well. Um, and technically, Beta's picture was better, and the cassettes were smaller, but VHS solved what I think was the fundamental marketing problem of videotapes about a year before Beta did. And that was that somebody needed to figure out how to fit a whole movie. And by movie, I mean porn, how to fit a whole porn film on one video cassette. <laughs> and VHS figured out how to do that about a year before beta did and they just that was it beta it was over for beta their their market share kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller um until eventually it you know as a as a commercial wide market um technology it just disappeared
1: well there you go um the um it reminds me of this uh, Dana Gould but you know he talks about the evolution of phones and how in the beginning um, you know, mobile phones came out and they got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you realize that you could actually watch pornography on them. So they got <laughs> <and> bigger <laughs> bigger. Um, Yeah. So you know, there there you go. Uh, pornography as a uh, cultural uh, well, catalyst.
2: I, I think there there is a doctoral dissertation there, maybe somebody's already written it. And that sure is that you know, the impact of pornography on on technology in the late twentieth century. I mean, it's just it's everywhere. It's 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 a it's a driver of innovation.
1: It it just yeah, just like war.
2: <laughs> well, um I think
1: um I think that's a very um uh I don't know what kind of note it is, but it's a good note on which we could start to wrap up. Uh so um I, I really appreciate uh taking this uh, walk down memory lane with you and uh and it is a, I hope for our listeners as well, it's sort of interesting meditation on just what it is to, um, to remember, first of all, the films, uh, that, that stuck in our mind, because that's the thing, you know, nowadays you can watch a film as many times as you want, you know, assuming it's available to stream or find through means fair or foul. Yeah. And, um, and you may be, and you and and as you're doing that you can be um you can be in a car you can be on an airplane you can be checking your phone you can be at work for all intents and purposes you can be but, watching
2: another movie
1: exactly and uh, and it like and you, so you have all this access but it might not actually <laughs> land and i you know i really had, in when the early days of having a smartphone i really had to teach myself to not ever look at my phone during a film um and um and it's so striking to me when i think about films that maybe I've only seen once, but that the viewing of them was so particular, you know, a, a, um, a, a, a a cinematic experience uh, or, uh, or, or maybe a a film that just happened to me on the TV. And I was in the right, I was focused and ready and just, you know, there was all this, um, you know, th- there are films that maybe I've seen, um, you know, 50 times that I don't remember as well as a film that just stuck with me because it was, it was there. And, um, present at the right time and in the right way um, you sound
2: you sound like bernstein in citizen kane <laughs> <you know? laughs> yes, describing right. describing the woman that he that he saw on the ferry 50 60 <laughs> the years ago
1: Ferry, exactly there we go uh which brings it all back to new york and <laughs> your good self so thank you so much richard for coming thank on you. to the, on uh, the, on the podcast today. And uh and 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 regaling us. And I feel like uh I feel like we, we may have to invite you back in the future to talk more because I think we've only just scratched the surface of uh, uh of, of the um ocean of anecdotes <laughs> that you are <laughs> capable of laying I, on us. I'd be delighted. Um so um thank you so much, folks, uh, for listening. Thank you, Richard, for being here. And um, Anders, do you want to tell the people where they can find the the various things they need. Yes, you
0: can uh, follow us on Instagram. We're at Pod. You can also send us an email to homesmoviespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're both on Letterboxd, which um, we I can add the uh, uh, episode, I mean, the sorry, Letterbox links into the episode description. Do you use Letterboxd, Richard?
2: I, I started and then I got distracted. You know, some something bright and shiny went in front of me, so... <laughs>
1: For me, I got into Letterboxd at exactly the right times. the middle of the darkest, boringest days of COVID—and I sat down for a basically like a six-hour stretch and just went through all the movies and log and and ticked off the ones I'd seen, and I started making lists, and oh, it's just gone from there. It is. Uh, it is by far and away the social media service or the app that I use the most on my phone. Like it is completely taken away. And my life is the better
2: for it, I will say. I, I, I keep waiting for anti-social media, but, you know, that's just me.
1: Maybe Letterboxd is the sort of pioneer in that regard. <laughs>
2: um, anyway, so we are we are very much
1: findable uh, through the various uh, digital pathways. Um so uh so yeah that's been our episode um stay tuned for more um of these interviews but also our alternative oscars and other bump and we still need to do our top 10 films of the 1920s and is that so we have that one yes, decade left to come we do have that one yeah so lots to uh, lots to listen out for so i'll say once again to you richard thank you very much for being with us you're very um, welcome uh, thank
2: you for having me
1: all right thank you very much for listening